Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast. Of course, I'm Karen. And uh, our topic today is impact investing and compassionate capitalism and educating a new generation. And the reason why this topic was of interest to me, and I believe interest to you as well, is because there's a lot of buzz about impact and investing, impact investing these days. Sometimes people will refer to it as socially responsible investing, or they might have some kind of uh, sustainable investing. And I get a lot of questions about the difference between impact investing and, co- and what I call compassionate capitalism and even conscious capitalism. And I always explain that. And I thought it was, would be good to also look at impact investing within the larger scope, because if you read the show notes, one of the questions that I pose, because the definition, according to Investopedia, is impact investing is investing that aims to generate specific beneficial social and environmental effects in addition to financial gains. And I was like, shouldn't all investing have that impact or that goal? I mean, when it comes to, you know, when you start to look beyond just buying and selling stock, a few months, a few weeks back, I did a, 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 interview with a gentleman about uh, sustainability and impact investing when you build your public stock portfolio. And my guest today, when we were talking about this, he talked about shareholder activism in trying to hold the executives of a company accountable for what it is that they do and the direction they take the company. But I would think that as we think about the, the as we as investors or with whatever discretionary income people have that they would want to have their dollars to have the most impact uh, in, in beyond sort of like a ripple effect of how it, so, you know, you have that a little bit with real estate investing in that typically you're buying something, you're improving it in order to make more money on it or to provide something that people would want to rent or stay in or, you know, live in. And so you're improving a community in general. In theory, that's the way most real estate investing goes. You know, when you get into stock market investing, there's really not any impact on that. It's just buying and selling. But anytime you're investing in entrepreneurism, you would think that you would want to have that have an impact. And in fact, I had um, looked at this when I was uh, preparing for this, and I and I thought it was really interesting in one article uh, compared the difference between impact investing and philanthropy. And so the goal of impact investing is to allow money to flow to local entrepreneurs to solve local social problems in a sustainable manner. And not every socially inclined investment is an impact investment, though, but the core business goal is to have a social impact. And so the difference between, you know, and they expect financial return. So the difference between charities and philanthropy is that social impact investments need to solve a social problem year after year and have a sustainable business model, not just raise enough money for the year, i.e. what charities do for the most part. 
And so when I was looking around saying, okay, I need to cover this topic, I remembered that I had um, a college buddy that was deep into this space that um, we had gotten together at a, a class reunion. We had had you know, gone to lunch and tried to catch up on stuff and realized that he had been involved a lot in microfinance. And that was an area that I had been very interested in because of, you know, the, the worldwide impact on it, but also what I had seen, it's different in how they define it in the United States versus elsewhere. But the, the dollar amounts are just bigger here because everything's bigger here, but it's, you know, it has, it typically can have the same sort of impact. So I reached back out to him recently and I said, so what are you doing now? I saw something that had changed on his LinkedIn. And so my guest today, Shannon Mudd, we go back many, many decades um, into our time at Emory. And, um, and, I, and it, it really was no surprise to me that he would be um, passionately engaged in helping a new generation understand how to be socially responsible for, for the way that they view the world and their, and the impact they have on their investments. Because I remember back then, he's going to embarrass now. If you could see him live, you would, you would say, you would go, oh, she's embarrassing him. But he was always one of those people that was generous of spirit and, and kind and um, uplifting in how he behaved in school, how he treated other people. And even though I'll have to tell you this, because some of y'all know it from other conversations I've had on, on my podcast, our, our common bond besides college is rugby. And so you don't often think of rugby as being a generous spirit of a, of a sport, but you know, there is a certain amount of, of, uh, of um, gentlemanliness in the way true ruggers um, behave when it comes to how they behave on the field and off the field. And, and Shannon Mudd, my guest today, is an example of that. So I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that, but let me finish introducing him. He's the Director of Microfinance, Impact Investing, and Social Entrepreneur Programs, and Visiting Assistant Professor of Economics at Haverford College in uh, Haverford, Pennsylvania. And he is also the member and a leading committee at Investor Circle, which is a angel impact investor network of angel groups that direct funds from um, they're only they're also the personal funds, but also in, from foundations into early stage social entrepreneurs that are expected to generate both a positive return and a social environmental impact. So, with that, I say welcome to the show, Shannon. How are you doing today? Thank you, Karen. It's great to uh, be able to have the opportunity to talk with you, and I appreciate the, the very kind uh, comments uh, from way back in the day. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm very excited about this opportunity that I've had for a number of years now to work with students here at Haverford. And when I took this position, while it was originally designed and oriented toward microfinance, the administration kind of threw in this one little line about also get students involved in socially responsible investing. And when I did my own diligence about what that might mean, when I came across impact investing, I just felt like this was a really good space for the students to really engage with thinking about you know, how we deploy capital in our society, um, but also how they might be able to deploy capital themselves. 
And I like to compare it to how people make choices about how they deploy their own labor. You, know, the, you often don't choose what job you have just based on the highest salary. There's lots of other things that come into play, too. Uh, and increasingly, you hear people talking about how it's important they feel like there's some meaning and purpose in the work that they are doing. And so I think you can say, take that same kind of uh, approach to the way we deploy capital. It doesn't just have to be for the highest return. There might be other reasons to think about how we want to deploy our capital as well. Yes, absolutely. So, so talk a little bit. Let's fill in some gaps for people because, and, and, and as doing that, just give a uh, Reader's Digest version of microfinance and how it is today, how you became aware of it, and you know how, and, and a little bit more of the journey to translating that into a greater impact that you have in, in investing that's not debt-based but is equity-based with a different kind of return. Okay, sure. So I have to admit I came into microfinance uh, very honestly because my wife is involved in the industry. And so it was dinner conversation for many years, and I actually did a little bit of research and public a published a chapter in a book that was surveying the, the research into its impacts. And I was here on campus, and, and there was knowledge I knew something about it, uh, and so that was sort of what led to this position. But in terms of sort of bird's eye view of where the industry is now, um, you know, it's, the idea is to present small loans to people in poverty, and the reason it really had some initial great success and spread worldwide is because they were solving a problem that any um, lending institution has, which is basically that the borrower is always going to know more about themselves, about their intentions, about their abilities than the, the lender ever will. And usually what lenders do, they, they rely on having collateral, they rely on having good information about the borrower um, and you know, credit reports and things like that. But in the developing countries in which this first started, which is Bangladesh and Bolivia, uh, and in many beyond that, there really wasn't a possibility to go into a relatively low-income neighborhood and expect to find households that would have collateral they could use, or that there was good information on, on them about their backgrounds and about what they were doing and about um, their credit histories. And so microfinance came up with some very innovative ways to try to better align incentives for borrowers to pay back. And there's a lot of suspicion about whether people in poverty actually would pay. And what microfinance has demonstrated is that, that borrowers in poverty are very good borrowers consistent, very, very high repayment rates. And some of the innovations were things like uh, lending to people in a group, so there's a group dynamic where they're all supporting each other. Uh, also, frequent repayments, instead of having repayments once every six months or once every month, they actually would meet weekly. Uh, and also reduce costs by having everybody come together to pay at once in these group meetings. You might have uh, a small group of borrowers and a group of five but bring you know, eight of them all together at the same time on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock, and they all show up with their payments on a weekly basis. And so that reduces the cost side of it as well for actually uh, making these loans. So that was the initial innovation, and it spread very, very quickly. Uh, you may recall that in 1995, it was the UN um, year of microcredit, and in 1996, Muhammad Yunus and the um, Grameen Bank won the Nobel Prize for Peace. 
So yeah. there's been some challenges in the industry, but I think what really is always attracted to me is that this was trying to use market mechanisms to solve um, real social problems, in this case poverty. And there was a initially, I think, a, a hope and maybe an expectation that this could actually alleviate or even eradicate poverty. I think that we've dialed back our expectations of it. But now we, it's more about you know, why shouldn't people in poverty also have access to appropriate financial um, instruments, which they can use themselves, and they decide themselves what they do instead of what somebody else you know, giving them money and telling them this is what you should do with it. Yeah, okay. So that – I mean, I see that because when people – when funds, you know, usually the ones that are providing the funds are are institutional funds, banks that have, that are taking other people's money and putting it to work based on a mission to do to do that because it will have this great impact and they're not the kind of businesses that are going to create a exit or a return on investment. They're just something that needs to get them started. They're buying a sewing machine because they're going to start a sewing business in their village or in their town, or they're going to buy a little piece of land to develop, to, you know, put, do, uh, um, or some kind of farming equipment or things like that. Whereas like in the United States, I've seen it's a different kind of definition. They call it microfinance, but instead of being a thousand dollars, it might be $10,000 or something like that. And it's to buy computers or it's to, um, you know, do other things that would be part of a, a retrofitting of a facility for a daycare or something that's all, you know, sole proprietor, small business types of things. And I see it as a bridge really to getting into having an impact on what, and in my definition of the show, I called impact investing as a sort of a pillar, if you will, of compassionate capitalism, because you're investing in entrepreneurs expecting a return. And typically entrepreneurs are having are some sort of innovation. There's an innovation in their business model. There's an innovation in their um, in what they're bringing, a technology or a new way of doing things to the marketplace, uh, and and therefore you know it's it's a business that's going to scale and have some form of an exit. Otherwise, it's a nonprofit that's just kind of repeating itself. So is that do you, is it true? Is that a sort of a pathway to that? Is that how you got there and the impact that you're having? in what you're doing with investor circle and, and you know, how you're impacting that. Is that, am I on track there? So you are, I think you raised some interesting uh, points. So one is there's a difference between providing uh, debt to a, a business versus providing uh, equity capital. Uh, the problem with debt is, and this is a problem in microfinance as well, is you have to start paying it back almost immediately, but the timing for when you can actually generate the cash to provide um, the lender back their payments, you know, that doesn't always mesh with what their expectations and needs are. So the idea of equity uh, is a little more patient. And so we often talk about this early stage uh, impact investing, early stage investing in general, as being patient capital. Uh, that it's going to take a while for the business to develop its business plan mm-hmm. and to be able to earn and generate the kinds of revenues for you to have an exit. Uh, so let me just back up a little bit because I want to talk a little bit more about how we differentiate impact, and maybe it's a little bit um, narrower than the kinds of, of conscious capitalism you were talking about. 
Because I think it's important to say that, that we are looking to solve, you know, not only make sort of the business sector better and more efficient, uh, the economy more efficient, but to actually solve a real social environmental problem. And so um, it could be about jobs, but it's you, we're going to talk about jobs for a particular sector that is very vulnerable. So, for example, one of the investments we made is to a company called Wash Cycle Laundry. And what they do is they provide delivery laundry services to small businesses like, a, you know, a gym or a yoga um, or a massage place. And they do it by doing a bicycle delivery, and there's an environmental impact for that. Uh, but also they are hiring from a specific population, it's sort of hard to hire people uh, who are formerly incarcerated, people who, were, uh, who are recovering from addiction, et cetera. And so it was designed to actually target that particular population. And I think that's important in terms of the actual reach of this company. It's not just jobs for anybody, but jobs for a population that is particularly struggling to find those types of jobs. Right, right. So, yeah, I know that was one of the things. So let's say, okay, so would a um, – that was one of the things that you and I had spoke about, and, and you know, specifically I think they target as a – definition impact investing is uh, and i and how i've been positioning it's um economic inequality so it's it's poverty but it's also education you know equalizing education because there's a disparity in the quality of education that certain communities may get over other communities it's gone on for you know many many decades and uh, modifying that changing that so like for example if a uh, an organization that provided after-school kind of uplifting training for STEM, techno- you know, that's science, technology, engineering. Some people include arts and math. And that is that um, for, you know, disadvantaged people, but it was a, a for-profit where they might get the, 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 uh, um, fees for attending subsidized through grants, would would that be something? Because it has to have that for-profit in there for, to be an impact investing. Or get, do you have other examples of how something that's addressing education or something that's just addressing the economic um, inequalities would be uh, a business that you guys have looked at? Oh, most certainly. In fact, uh, one of the companies that we invested in, in fact, it's our the first positive exit we had was a company called Code Monkey, and what they were doing was they had gamified a way to teach coding to elementary school children. It actually started uh, in Israel, cool. moving into the U.S. And what we what we thought was particularly important was this was not a technology that required much of an investment of a school and did not require a whole lot of resourcing. In fact, they were developing. Um, curricula for teachers that could be used in any class. It wasn't like the the school had to develop a computer uh, curriculum themselves. And it had such a low price point that it didn't require the kind of resources that a lot of more well-resourced schools can easily put out. And so when we invested in them, we we made it very clear that uh, what we're interested in was that they were, you know, keeping the price point so it's accessible to all schools, and that they started, we, we wanted them to actually start tracking, you know, how many mm-hmm. of their schools 
um, were very high proportion of, of subsidized lunches, for example, as a way to see are they actually reaching those under-resourced schools. Because it'd be easy just to go to the, to the top schools, so part of it is that the investor is kind of holding them responsible to a mission that they say is important to them, um, but sometimes that can, they can get distracted. So I, I, and it kind of brings me back to a, an article that Milton Friedman wrote back in the early 70s where he basically kind of said there's no such thing as, as corporate social responsibility, that the only real uh, – the only, go, the only um, responsibility that management has is to its shareholders, and shareholders generally want profit. But he puts a caveat in that, which is that as long as that is what shareholders want, which is profit. But our investment in CodeMonkey is we wanted profit, but we also wanted to make sure that these, this technology was available to under-resourced schools. And so because we were investors who wanted something beyond just profit, that it makes sense for uh, that business to respond to what its, its shareholders want. And I think that is a bit of a sea change in the way that we're thinking about our, our, our capitalist system, uh, because more and more you're seeing investors wanting more than just profit. You see this in a lot of ESG investing, um, which is similar in terms of people are caring not just about earning profits, but they also want the company to be a good company, that they have in place policies about recycling and policies about uh, the way that they manage their employees and the benefits that they offer them, et cetera. And I think that's why you're seeing much more interest in ESG. It's uh, a little broader than impact investing, but I think is also very important. And we can use the market to make sure that we are actually developing the economy and the outcomes it produces in, in the ways that we want it to. Okay, so using uh, that as that company as an example, so you, so within the the life cycle of a company, in order to get to a point where they would sell the company and create a multiple for those investors, was their business model such that they had to ma- maintain this core component that was you know in its this initial target market to have this impact, but were they developing additional High, you know, functionality that would be a fee base that individuals might pay or colleges might pay to have or other types of organizations or the higher end schools that have, you know, excess funds because of property taxes being higher and you know, funding being greater would, would it eventually have a pipeline to, to those kind of things that would have that potential for yeah. uh, exit? So, yes, it did have a very positive exit, um, fortunately for us, uh, helping us keep us sustainable. So it was a, basically a, a freemium model for individuals, that individuals can get the initial access into the first levels of the programs, but then they have to pay if they want to do more. But they also had a model of actually providing to schools, where schools would have a, a very low-cost subscription they could provide to their students. And so that was the part that interested us, uh, was this – um, access to schools that they were providing and the price point. And that's actually why they were eventually were purchased is because it was a company that was looking for an entree into um, schools to be able to provide alternative and uh, different types of educational products. Ah, okay, good. Okay, so another area that you see well, you know, can, kind of get open. Uh, sure. Karen, I just want to say one more thing because when we are looking at firms – one of the things that's been very important for us is this idea of alignment. 
which is does the impact actually grow with the company? And there are lots of examples where a company says, uh, you know, it, it has a, a mission in a certain area, but it might not actually be part of its DNA. Like you know, a lot of times you'll see such things as, you know, buy one and we'll give, give something away to somebody else, right? Uh, buy one, give one type of thing. And the problem with that is that it's not clear that at some point they might decide not to do that because um, it's not necessarily part of, of their business model. Whereas wash cycle laundry, you know, the, the bicycle delivery was a big part of their mission uh, with the environmental part. And that was a core to their business proposition, their business model was that delivery in dense cities actually could be done better by bicycles. And so it was integral to their success. As the company made, became more and more successful and was using more and more bicycles, that actually was pulling more and more vans off of the streets, and so having that environmental impact. And so that alignment is very important for us when, we're, when we are considering different uh, investments. If we don't think that it's part of its DNA or, or that the impact doesn't grow as the company begins to be, become more and more successful, then we're going to have to look more closely about whether we really think this is a good investment for us. Okay, so that leads into my next um, kind of category of questions is, uh, so when, um, so the question is when um, companies are approaching investors, and so likewise on, on investor side, so this is sort of like, how do you cut through the noise to say a company saying they're an impact investment, or is that something that you you don't say because if you have to say it, then it then it's not true. I mean, so so like, is there a, you know, it's like, oh well, you have to tell me that you're having an impact, then you know, you're not really having an impact, <laughs> or like so like for example, within the context of clean water, right? There is um, a lot of times, you know, over the years, I've seen things that have to do with clean water, and they oftentimes will say talk about or real countries where we know that it's a crisis, you know, people die on a regular basis for the lack of clean water. And, um, and so there's, there's that side of it, but it's also become very quite apparent in the United States that we have many communities that are impacted by the lack of clean water or are being impacted by contaminated water and polluted water. So it seems like there would be a, a you know, an opportunity really worldwide when it comes to that. And, and so does it, people, like how does an investor that says, yes, I want to have an impact, identify that this thing is having that kind of an impact. And when an entrepreneur is passionate about the impact that they're having, how do they convey that to investors without trying to be like self-serving, you know, pounding my chest, I'm an impact investment. So that's a very important question. And yeah, just like, when you are making any kind of investment into a company, especially an early stage company, you know, there's a pretty intensive due diligence process to be able to dig in, to understand their financials and their business plan. You probably want to make phone calls to check the references of the CEO and founder. You want to meet with them to sort of, you know, make sure you feel comfortable with, with uh, their approach, their ability to listen and be coached as, um, as, they're likely going to have to make some changes in their business model over time. So who are they listening to? And do they actually take advice? 
uh, from people who might have some uh, expertise in an area and can offer some good directions for them to go. Uh, talk to suppliers, talk to customers. So that is part of any due diligence into an early stage company. And so we would just add on doing the diligence on the impact. And so the question is, you know, what is a company going to be measuring? Do they, they have some kind of theory of change or should have some kind of theory of change that underlies their business model? Uh, so, for example, the wash cycle laundry that I talked about, uh, the theory of change is if we are able to do delivery laundry by bicycle, then that's going to mean less um, – vans on the road and that means that there's less pollution because we're using uh, equipment to wash uh, our laundry that is clean and we're using detergent that is clean and so all of that is reducing the environmental footprint uh, and and so those are things that can be measured uh, you can measure how much less water using by using better machines or you can talk about phosphates or whatever it is that's in detergent that is um, being used by normal um, laundry service that yours is reducing. Uh, so, so those are things that can be measurable, um, but you really have to have the theory of change to make sure you can track back. You know, there's things that you can control. There's certain outputs you control. So, for example, giving jobs to people who are formerly incarcerated, um, but are their lives better? Do you actually reduce recidivism by that, for example? And that's a little bit harder to measure. All you can measure is your direct hiring, but uh, these other things would be harder to track. So it's, it's sometimes you have to go and look up research about an area. So, for example, you talk about solar lighting, and it's been demonstrated to have uh, an impact on, you know, for example, rural low-income houses when they get access to, um, to solar-powered lanterns, that we actually see an increase in the health of the children because they can reduce their use of kerosene lamps, which can have very – uh, negative consequences for children's health, and that in turn is going to impact their education. So there's studies out there that establish those kinds of links. So you might not have to reestablish them, but instead you can port to the research that demonstrates that these kinds of impacts will occur. Okay. All right. So not really like I, you just mentioned about the the uh, political the um, um, prison. Ed, re, repatriatization into you know education so for job things the tax incentives for that is different things like that I had a company a while back that had come to me that had a program and what they wanted to do what they did was they would buy a um, hotel or a motel retrofit it for temporary housing because they already were licensed to be like a halfway house and they would have education in that and and from there, they would, you know, go into, so they had a nonprofit and they wanted a for-profit side and they would, um, you know, educate and, you know, get them to work and get them back on their feet. And they had a great track record and they came to me to talk about how to get investors for that. And at the time, impact investing wasn't as much of a quote unquote, you know, thing. It was like, well, there's a real estate aspect to this. There's your track record to this. And you know, you have to go, it was impact, but we didn't call it that because people that, that are concerned about, you know, getting, you know, creating those kind of jobs um, and, the, and the cultural impact of that, you know, those are the kind of investors you have to go after to try to find that. But it was really hard to try to navigate, you know, pre-Jobs Act and crowdfunding 
you know, how do you get beyond your traditional angel group to find those kinds of investors that have that double bottom line, have that thing that's other than, you know, just the making money side. Because you could show they're making money, they could tie it to the real estate, they, people could be there, they basically would have rents that they would be get paid, the investors get paid out of the rents. And so, you know, it was, it had a good structure to it. So um, within that, con- that kind of a context, and you know you have the investor circle. Are there other organizations out there that are like, yes, we like to look at those kinds of deals that don't fit the typical investor model because they're having an impact that is this, you know, plus this icing on the cake, so to speak. Are there other organizations that investors can get involved in and entrepreneurs can reach out to? You know what? Uh, most definitely. And uh, I should say that Investor Circles had a name change. They uh, remerged with the organization they originally were a part of, which was the uh, Social Venture Network. And so the newly merged organization is now called the Social Venture Circle, or SBC. And so, yeah, we're a net- network that is nationwide, and we have uh, local chapters, uh, strong chapters in Philadelphia and New York, and there's there in North Carolina and Colorado and out in California. And so that is, you know, it's possible to apply uh, to our national events to see if there's interest among our members or to our local events as well. But there are many, many other organizations that are doing uh, that are in this space. Uh, for example, there is a, a company, uh, actually a fund called Impact Engine up in Chicago that is doing this kind of investing. Um, there's um, a number of small funds or, or sometimes larger funds that are looking to invest in this kind of uh, in these kinds of early stage startups or continuing companies uh, that can demonstrate uh, real impact. And sometimes it's it's not just about uh, the impact in terms of the products and services. Uh, sometimes it's about actually the founder themselves. I think you've probably heard some of the stats about uh, the venture capital and a lot of funding and how little of it is being channeled uh, to women or to uh, people of color. And so there are some funds that actually have a gender lens, for example, in their investing in social enterprises or just straightforward enterprises. So, yes, there's a lot out there. Um, And I could could maybe – Provide some uh, resources for your listeners, uh, a couple of websites they can look at for, to find out more of these. Yeah, okay. So as we start to sort of wrap up, let's talk about, you know, what you see as the future because, you know, I wrote my book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, it, with the, the purpose to educate people that were not familiar with investing in entrepreneurs should they, if they wanted to, here's, here's the benefits, here's the risks. And this is how you get started. This is how you, you know, integrate it into your portfolio so that we could create a next generation of people that were, that were outside of your traditional angel groups to invest, whether it's a startup or an expansion stage company at whatever level, based on your risk reward and amount of capital, really anybody could participate in it the same way they just about anybody can participate in real estate investing these days. So, you know, that was my purpose. And then I know that that part of why you proposed the program that you have at Haverford was to start engaging these students to be be thoughtful as they go forth in their careers. Let's talk a little bit about the impact you see the programs that you're having and maybe other universities are having on these students as they learn about these kinds of, of avenues for investment and the impact that they can have. 
So that's a great question. Um, one of them is they're going to be inside corporations, and, and corporations have policies and, and have interests, and so just thinking about what does it mean to be a good company, I think, is part of it. Um, and corporations, many of them are doing um, you know, venture, invest, venture investing as well, uh, so that's part of it. Uh, but I think the bigger opportunity right now comes out of the Jobs Act, which you have mentioned, which is uh, the possibility of, of getting involved in some equity crowdfunding uh, or debt crowdfunding where you can support local businesses where you're not the one that has to do all of the work and setting it up, but there are these platforms that can help you manage these types of investments. And I know that Investor Circle uh, and Social Venture Circle, uh, we recently did a deal, uh, were involved in a deal uh, that was being offered to accredited investors with a very high minimum investment, but they also were syndicating to a, a real estate crowdfunding platform called Small Change, which meant that people could also invest for a minimum of $500. And so I think there are ways through these equity crowdfunding platforms like WeFunder, which would be equity, Honeycomb Credit, which is debt, that allows you to uh, put a proportion of your investments, that you want to be careful and, and understand the risks that you are taking, uh, into your local economy or, or into businesses that are trying to address problems that are important to you. So I think there is a great opportunity for, for uh, people who are not accredited investors, whether you're younger or older, uh, to look beyond you know, just the mutual funds, whether you're talking about passive ones or actively managed ones, uh, to deploy your capital in a way that might be more meaningful to you uh, and still generate some, some good returns. Very and good. I just want to point out that sort of, I think, in terms of what's on the horizon is also related to this, which is that um, – most of the investing, so all the investing I'm doing through Social Venture Circle and my students and I are doing with MI3 and Social Venture Circle, um, we are accredited investors representing a foundation in Hong Kong. And so there is a, a bar for being able to do this. You know, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission seeks to protect investors, the small investors, and they don't regulate this kind of private equity, this early stage equity investments that we are doing. Um, the reason they don't uh, regulate is because they limit who can get involved. They say anybody who is a accredited investor has enough wealth that they can pay somebody to make sure they're not making a stupid decision. But they aren't able to offer the protections for, um, for retail investors. Uh, and so that's what's so important about, about the, the JOBS Act is now even retail investors have the opportunity to do some of this private investing. Uh, but one of the things about this early stage equity is that it's very risky. And so we are limited to primarily look at companies that have this sort of potential hockey stick exponential growth uh, in their business plan. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to continue to maintain um, the success of our portfolio unless we have some big winners. But we're increasingly recognized that there may be firms out there that have maybe more linear growth profiles, um, but are secure enough in their ability to generate revenue and, and profit that there might be an alternative exit to the standard VC angel exit of, of a, um, an acquisition or an IPO and that type of thing, where maybe they can start uh, having what we call an alternative exit, where there can be uh, a payment out of a portion of revenues over time until a certain 2x or 3x 
amount of the original investment has been returned, and and then the equity is redeemed. So I think that's also an exciting area of of where the this type of investing is going. Yes, thank you so much for making that point. That was very well said. That was, and that's such a an area that I I emphasize in my book. I think it's really some people call it royalty financing, some call it revenue financing, but you know, bottom line is that it's secured against the equity until the till the um, multiple is paid out through revenue, and it works really well also with companies that are in a a local business that's in a growth stage. Maybe they want to bring out a new line of products, they want to expand in a certain way, and the money that they need is um, not within the scope of what they could get from traditional angels or VCs or private equity funds or a bank, and so they can turn to the marketplace that. Would be, would be their community itself that sees the the success of that company and wants to see them grow, or even, you know, raging fans of potential customers or people within the crowd or else or those retail investors you described that want something that has a bigger upside potential than what you can get in a traditional stock market, and um, but it likes the idea that it it pays out almost as if it's an annuity. And if they invest through their self-directed IRA or the Roth IRA, which I have other podcasts I talk about that, then those returns go back in tax-free into their retirement account. And so that's always uh, that's a nice way to approach it as well if they don't have cash on hand but would be considered an accredited investor. So, all right. Well, Shannon, I want to encourage people to, you know, the, the domain that I put in the, the show notes is kind of long. It's through Haverford, H-A-V-E-R-F-O-R-D dot E-D-U. And is it an easier way? Can they just search on the name, on your name when they get there to the website and find you and these courses that you offer and your contact information? That would work. Just search my name, Shannon Mudd, or search MI3, the Microfinance and Impact Investing Initiative, and that, that will come up with stuff that way too. Okay, very good. So I encourage you to reach out and um, – and get in touch with, this is a topic that you're very interested in and you want to learn more about. Shannon Mudd, M-U-D-D, is um, clearly an expert in this area. And uh, I'm, and being a generous spirit with his knowledge, I'm sure that he will be happy to share that. And he's got these websites that he mentioned as well. And also you have to learn more about my company and how we work with entrepreneurs and investors and investors helping with due diligence is uh, karenrands.co and all the information about my book and excerpts of that free excerpts are available there as well. So thank you everybody for tuning in. Hope you'll come back next week and uh, give us some five stars and share this with a friend that you think will find this information valuable. And with that, I'll say onwards and upwards. Thank you, Shannon. All right. Thank you, Karen.